0: Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Olana Munger. On this episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Michelle Caird. Dr. Caird is a professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Michigan in the Division of Pediatric Orthopedics. The exciting news regarding Dr. Caird is that she was recently appointed as the chair of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Michigan. I wanted to speak to Dr. Caird about her recent appointment and how she has advocated for diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout her career. I had a great time speaking with Dr. Caird, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Michelle Caird. Dr. Michelle Caird, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I'm so excited to speak with you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here and excited to talk.
0: Awesome. And so what I would love is if, in your own words, can you describe your background, hometown college, medical school, residency, fellowship, and beyond? Sure,
1: sure. I, I come from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I am a third generation surgeon. Oh, my wow. grandfather was a urologist uh, oh. and, uh, and my father was a vascular surgeon and um, I carried on the tradition of uh, surgery. I did not really even understand that um, all doctors weren't surgeons until I was about 10 years old. Um, okay. I thought, why, why wouldn't everybody want to be a surgeon? Right. Um, uh, I, Grand Rapids, Michigan is, um, is, a, uh, was a smaller town then. It's growing a lot. Um, and I, Uh, Came to undergraduate studies in engineering at University of Michigan. I studied materials engineering, and um, and then uh, which was sort of of, um, foreshadowing because Mm -hmm. I feel like bone is the ultimate material, Mm -hmm. and uh, and so I think that that was a really nice preparation for orthopedic surgery. I did medical school at University of Michigan, you're going to detect the theme, uh, and, then, um, and then residency here at University of Michigan as well. And I made a break, and I went to, um, to Philadelphia, to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for my pediatric orthopedic surgery fellowship and then uh, was real uh, always intended to go back to my um, uh, hometown to Grand Rapids for um, practice, but I just had a wonderful opportunity for um, mentorship and um, and partnership with many of the people with whom I had trained to come back to the University of Michigan to practice. Uh, And I've been here since
0: 2004 as a practicing pediatric orthopedist. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. The Michigan theme is, is throughout. That's awesome. When did you know that you wanted to do orthopedic surgery? So
1: I, I alluded to my interest in materials and engineering and, mm-hmm. and that the you know that so what we study in that field is how uh, the structure and function are so interrelated. So from the very smallest level to, um, to the highest level, um, that the initial building blocks really often determine. Um, Uh, not only how something turns out, but how it functions. Mm -hmm. And bone is just so incredible in that um, it has so many functions, metabolic as well as supportive. uh, And it's, you know, it's such a great storage for, um, for calcium and phosphorus. um, And and um, it, if it's not structured well, um, it, it really changes how bones function. So um, so I, I always thought that that was very interesting. I also always love to put things together. And, and, uh, and so those two areas really came together in orthopedics. Um, I, I had some really great role models in orthopedic surgery here at University of Michigan as a um, as a medical student um, in doctors Sybil Beerman and Dr. Fran Farley Mm -hmm. and uh, and I always thought wow they you know they've done so much and and they're they're very accomplished and um They have families, they have, um, you know, they've got wonderful careers, they're great teachers and they're great surgeons. And so why, why can't, why can't I do that too? That's really wonderful. And they were very supportive. So that's where that comes from.
0: Oh, that's so special. And then you chose to further subspecialize into pediatric orthopedic surgery. And so what made you to pediatric orthopedic surgery?
1: I get, I've always had the, the wonderful opportunity to teach residents. And so I, when they're thinking about what, what, what should I do for my career? I, I always say, well, so if you think about, you know, many times you love many of the surgeries that you do in all the subspecialties. But if you think about the hardest part of the subspecialty, if that doesn't matter too much to you, if you feel like, oh, my gosh, that's so worth it so that I can work with this population of people or mm-hmm. this, um, this particular um, ailment. Uh, and and it's still totally worth it. Then, then that's your then then that maybe you've got your choice. So I always feel like um, working with kids and families. Some people find really challenging, right. and I just I feel like oh that's where the joy comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, watching. Uh, uh, someone who has a broken arm because they fell off a pumpkin or they hooked their wagon up to the dog. And, um, and so those sorts of things I always feel are um, uh, uh, so joyful. And I know that kids... Can really get better. I, I I feel like we we can um, maybe set their bones and they just heal like gangbusters and make us look good. Um, and and so um, so that part of pediatric orthopedics was always very um, appealing and. I also really love the longitudinal care um, in, in pediatric orthopedics that we can provide. So mm-hmm. I can meet a patient, um, a patient's mom when the baby is in utero right. with uh, a prenatally diagnosed clubfoot, And we, um, and I can really take care of that person for years and years and years and years. So um, that's really wonderful. Um, and for some kids, it's broken bones. And like I said, they heal quickly and make us look good. For other kids with chronic medical troubles, it's, uh, it's about taking care of them and their families and maybe not necessarily um. F- fixing things, but really making um, making life more comfortable, more functional, helping somebody to interact a little bit better with their family and their environment. And uh, and I find that really wor- rewarding as
0: well. Oh. Um, speaking of, you know, I know how you mentioned how bone, it's this structural as well as metabolic, you know, thing. And you also talked about, you know, the pediatrics, um, aspect of where you're sometimes dealing with children with chronic um, issues. And one of the things that I found very interesting about your CV well, first of all, you know, someone's a big deal when literally their CV has a table of contents. So this, it was just amazing to just like look at the first page and we're like, this is going to be great. Um, but one of the interesting parts of your CV was that you have a research interest in pediatric low bone mass. Which, which was great because I've always, you know, as a resident physician, I, you know, don't even think about those things. And I always associate low bone mass with the elderly or folks with, you know, oncologic conditions and those sorts of things. And so I was hoping that you can just kind of, in your own words, just kind of provide a brief description of how you got into this kind of niche area of research. Yeah, thank you. So uh, there's a couple
1: um, uh, diseases that... Can really impact kids um, that where their bone mass is just not not as um, as bi- as big as they need it to be. So, for example, um, in areas where kids do not um, have uh, uh, ambulatory um, weight bearing. We can see that they develop really low bone mass, and that can lead to fractures uh, and um, and other uh, metabolic troubles. So, for example, in cerebral palsy, um, in kids that are um, more affected at GMFCS four and five, where they're really they are wheelchair ambulators, uh, or um, or some someone has to really. Um, to uh to give them full support in the wheelchair those kids can really easily fracture uh their bone wastes and uh and so they're they're prone not just to long bone fractures um where we see maybe their foot got caught and they have they'll sustain a tibia fracture or a femur fracture but also compression fractures in the spine. Mm. Um, And so uh, that's one area. Um, uh, Another area where kids have low bone masses in myelomeningocele or or spina bifida. Um, Again, if they're not putting um, weight on their bones, the bones which respond to mechanical stimuli waste away. They, right. um, they don't get that, um, that stimulus to stay strong or to continue to strengthen. Um, and then the last area that, that I've done some study is in osteogenesis imperfecta. And so ultimately, um, the bone there, the collagen is not, uh, has problems. And so the, um, it, Results in the bones being brittle, but also the bone mass is really low. And again, in that area, we can see um, uh, spinal compression fractures and and then frequent fractures from the brittleness as well. So, um, so I I just I had a really large patient population who um, who had who faced some of those challenges. Um, And I also had a wonderful, uh, laboratory, uh, collaborator, Mm. uh, who wanted to study bone mass as well. So that's, that's where, that's where this interest really came from.
0: Oh, that's awesome. And I know this is always difficult for the guests on the show, but I would love if you can just humble brag and talk about what your team has been able to accomplish through your research.
1: Yeah, thanks. So um, so I'll say one of the two big areas, uh, the first is in osteogenesis imperfecta. We, in Michigan, we're sort of nestled between the, uh, a number of Shriners hospitals and the Shriners hospitals are where uh, kids with OI typically um, and frequently receive their care, Mm -hmm. Uh, but being sort of nestled in between a bunch of them meant that some kids, it's easier for them to get care here, and so we've had many kids over the years um, who got their care here, and we were able to set up to really build from scratch a multidisciplinary clinic here. And, uh, we, I, I found a great pediatric endocrinologist who had an interest in building this practice, a wonderful geneticist, uh, who was willing to do a clinic with us. Uh, we added, um, many specialists to Mm -hmm. the clinic, um, but we also said, you know, I think you know, maybe there's something different in the eye, and this is some an area where not a lot of people had done a ton of study. But to us, it made sense because you know the sclera is blue. We know that the globe is likely different that mm-hmm. it contains um, the collagen that's affected in, in OI, and so um, so we added um, uh, ophthalmologists uh, to our group. And you know, so completely um, away from bone, what we found we were able to find that um, that, uh, clinically, kids may have um, uh, their glaucoma measurements or the the pressure within the eye, the measurements um, can be off um, mm. if you do a different, if you do, you know, one particular type of a glaucoma test. Right. So you could underappreciate how much pressure is in the eye and and you could, people could be much closer to blindness than um, than you would realize if you simply relied on that test. So, um, so you know, one of the biggest accomplishments that I feel like we made for for kids and families with OI is that that um, we can, you know, we could send a warning and really save, <laughs> save sight. Right. Um, so I, I think that was really wonderful. And more in the bone mass realm, I, we're very excited to be doing a lot of research um, and particularly for folks with um, cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. We've been looking at, um, we looked at many um, uh, uh databases, Um, we've looked at many, um, we've looked through the microscope at this bone, we've looked at um, at, at, uh, at this disease in many different ways. What we are finding from our large database studies is that that folks with CP um, really have a significantly different morbidity and mortality profile than Than people who um, are unaffected with CP. And, um, and there are a number of factors that, that almost look like uh, early aging or, or that, that, that people are, are really susceptible to cardiovascular disease at young ages, Mm -hmm. to diabetes at young ages, and a number of other um, disease states. And so um, we, with uh, regard to bone, um, we're finding we, we're, we're trying to create a profile so that we can understand that if you're typically, um, growing, that there are certain times we know you add bone, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that, uh, the, the bone mass profile, um, looks one way. Uh, but what we're finding is that there may be some critical times when kids with CP could be adding bone mass and absolutely are not. And that that profile of bone health is really different. So we'd love to really characterize it better. And then, and then um, take steps to try to modify that so that we can really help them uh, for, um, for increasing bone health throughout the lifespan.
0: Wow. That's amazing. I think it's, I think it's awesome. And, you know, a testament to how You know, orthopedic surgeons, they're physicians first. The fact that you were able to help these kids with OI, literally with with their eyes, it had absolutely nothing to do with bone, but, you know, you really are a physician first. That's just, that's an awesome story. Um, Can you just talk about some of the future goals and directions that you're hoping to, you know, in addition to trying to understand, um, you know, the CP, uh, folks with CP and their bone mass and how you can maybe help it for the better. What are the other goals and directions that you currently have?
1: I, I think that there are um, uh, within the, the specifically within bone mass research. I think that we there are a number of really important medications that are available, and they've typically been used for the elderly and right. for osteoporosis, uh, and and many of them have been added to the uh, to treatment for OI. Um, it's it's off-label use in kids to use bisphosphonates um and some of the other um uh osteoporosis meds. Um, uh, but what I think that what we'll be able to do is to to find maybe a good combination of uh uh an anti-resorptive medicine that keeps you from resorbing your bone um, and maybe seal that in with a um a um a uh, an anabolic medicine that allows you to put more bone on there, um, and and so I, I feel like we're we're going to find out what the symphony of um, of meds may be to to be able to augment bone strength, uh, and and really uh, try to add at those critical times that I talked about to be able to add bone uh, and then um, maintain it. So that that's one of the areas that I really hope we can make some progress in over the next few years
0: that's awesome well Dr. Caird one of the reasons I did want to interview you is because the fact that on May 21st of this year it officially became public that you were anointed as chair of the department of orthopedic surgery at the University of Michigan Health and so first of all Congratulations on this amazing achievement to be just first of all chair of a department is such a big deal and to be one of the, you know, few now there's more, but still a few, you know, female chairs out in the country. And I was wondering if you can just sort of describe what it means to you. And I think in first, what it means to you to be chair of a place where you you did your medical school training, you did, you know, your residency and you've been there for such a long time. And what does it mean to you to kind of be at the head of this thing that you've that's been your home,
1: I'm gonna pause for a second. you pause um, I, <laughs> I
0: I, I, I recognize that I should have asked you how it meant for because i I forgot that you were a Michigan like through and through and yeah. I'm like, wow, That's like, great. what is it, what <laughs> does it feel like for someone to be, you know, I, you know, as a, I, a lowly medical student and then all the way now you're at the top of the game. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: So I feel very much, uh, a sense of, um, pride and obli- as well as obligation, um, uh, to, to, uh, the university of Michigan, I, as you pointed out, I really received my education here. People uh, invested their time, their energy, their teaching in me. And, um, and I have so many colleagues across the health system that I did residency with and, mm-hmm. and I, um, I became a junior faculty with. And so I have always felt very thankful for all that that people have done for me and uh and I've always tried to take advantage of every chance that people gave and and this is it's such an honor and uh, I view it as a a really great chance to give back to this place that um that taught me and has molded me and and uh and i hope to take that into the future to really continue to build and help us be the very best we can be
0: yeah, that's perfect and i know that we kind of what's great is that there's news of more and more women um, becoming chairs of their department and I think it's something that we certainly have kind of lagged behind, you know, certainly within, you know, climbing the academic ladder. And so I was hoping you can also speak about what it means to you to be, you know, one of the few female chairs in the country right now.
1: This is, it's such an incredible time. I think that um, that the, the increasing number of Women chairs and orthopedics is a reflection of a, a few things. First, um, there's been there have been women as orthopedic residents a little bit more steadily for the past 20 years, and um, and also there's been a great recognition uh, and um, and really uh, attention to supporting women as leaders in medicine. And so I, I, my career has come um, at the apex or, or the, the unification of those two things and really gave me a great chance uh, to take advantage, again, of all the chances that people have given me, the opportunities for leading, the opportunities for participating on committees and things like that. And, and really uh, uh, I'm very excited to be one of the first people to do this. And, um, (laughs) and I take it very seriously. I, I realize that there's, there's a lot riding on that. And so, um, so I think, uh, hard work, attention to, to the people, um, great attention to the residents who, and, and medical students whom we're teaching and the missions that we have, um, are really really important
0: right no that's awesome and I think you know you kind of hinted on the fact that you know it's a it's a big deal you know and I was hoping that you know you've been in academic medicine for some time now and um, you probably know the ins and the outs and have seen many of things and I was hoping you can just maybe describe or in your in your opinion what do you think are the difficulties that women face in climbing the academic ladder and and what can we do about it
1: uh, so in, uh, in medicine in general, I think we're achieving numbers in the medical school classes uh, at the um, matching those of men or even exceeding those of men at some medical schools. And so the, with that comes um, more voice uh, and, uh, and, and really the ability to to use our lens to, um, to help all of medicine, see things in a new way in, me- in, uh, orthopedics specifically, I think that our numbers are still really small, but, um, I, as I talked about before, I I've just found such joy in the work that we do mm-hmm. that, uh, that I really I try to to um, to share that and make sure that um, that women try this on. you know we get to return people to function in a way that that many subspecialties, don't. And we get to have our patients come thank us um, when their elbow works just fine, or when they when their spine is straight, or when they're out of pain, because they, you know, their knee is better. And so that's such a fulfilling thing. And, uh, and so personally satisfying, and, and makes this uh, orthopedics so fulfilling mm-hmm. and, and to not share those things and to, um, to not invite women into this um, specialty is, would be just a shame. So, um, so that that's where I feel like, oh boy, everybody can do this. And right. we, why shouldn't people be able to enjoy that uh, a satisfying career?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So oh. I think that's important.
0: That's awesome. And I know that you've technically been the head, the chair for two months now. Um, but I was hoping you can describe kind of what your goals and aspirations are um, as you take on this new role. So I think it's threefold. Um, first, I'm very dedicated to the people
1: who are here and our, um, our faculty, our learners, our, um, our staff. Right and to really, um, building on the great foundation that we have and, and just making it bigger, better. Uh, um, uh, I'm also really, um, thankful and, and work hard for our patients. Uh, uh, when I care for kids, I always am so thankful to parents for trusting us and our Mm -hmm. team with their children. And I feel that, and that, that extends to our adult patients as well. So um, we have a great obligation to them and I'm greatly thankful to them for for coming to us and being able to help them. Um, And then I think uh, the third thing that I feel is really important is is again, um, work toward diversifying orthopedics. Um, I, I have always felt that, or I've always asked medical students. Okay, so do you know what is the number one op, was ranked the number one operation that any human being can do on any other human being? And the total hip is has been the operation that has returned people to function in with the best pain relief and the best um, uh, the best cost benefit ratio of any any procedure and Mm -hmm. so um so then we talk about i'll i'll ask and or i'll point out that there are whole segments of the population who will never feel comfortable coming to have a a their hip replaced who will never feel welcome in the in the health system or um and and who've never felt welcome in the health system and maybe wouldn't trust or would never be able to, to, um, to, to undergo that. And so, and that's for many people, that's because they don't see somebody who could understand them or who might um, uh, get where they're coming from or the barriers that they feel to, um, to, to um, going through a surgery or getting better from a surgery. And so that's on us to change it we can make that better, we can be, we can invite more people into healthcare and into orthopedics and, and, um, and we can do that by being ourselves broad and, and, and diverse and, mm-hmm. and understanding better where our patients are coming from. So that, that's, my, that's the third thing that I think <laughs> is really important about, um, about being a chair here and being able to make change in those spaces.
0: Right. No, that's phenomenal. And, and seriously, I wish you the best of luck with everything that you're doing. And it's what's funny is like when it was posted on the Women in Ortho uh, Facebook, it literally like hundreds of people like liked it and loved it. And so I think everybody, everybody's rooting for you. So I really wish you the best with everything. Um, and I know that We've spoken about diversity and inclusion, and even in the press release uh, of your appointment to chair, it talked about how you are a passionate advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion in both your department and at Michigan Medicine. And you instituted the Orthopedic Surgery DEI Committee, and you serve on Michigan's Medicine's Anti Racism Oversight Committee. Um, So first, I was hoping you can just speak about this orthopedic surgery DEI committee and what the goal of this committee is. Uh, we
1: were really excited to institute this committee. And I'll tell you that it is the most requested committee to be part of in our department. Uh, we have, it's made up of residents, uh, uh, representatives from our staff at um, all of our different um, uh, centers. It, uh, it's also, there are many faculty members who participate uh, and um, it's headed up by Eileen Crawford, who is one of my sports surgery colleagues, Mm -hmm. and she is uh, our department's associate chair for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, um, and Dr. Crawford has the committee arranged with a number of subcommittees, mm-hmm. one of which uh, an example of which is the, um, the pipeline program subcommittee. Uh, one is the residency and recruitment subcommittee. Mm-hmm. Another one is our communications subcommittee. Uh, and so, and, the, and then I think there's also our education uh, subcommittee. And so um, some of the really great things that that this group has already done is to highlight and gather opportunities for uh, uh, conversations uh, on diversity uh, through the institution Mm -hmm. And so they sort of gather all of those opportunities and, and summarize them for people. Uh, we've also had, um, they've helped us host grand rounds for, uh, conversations on LGBTQ issues Mm -hmm. on, um, on race in orthopedics on gender in orthopedics. Uh, so, and we plan to continue with four uh, grand round sessions a year to, dedicated wow. to um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We have also uh, put together a, um, a great video that the residents um, spearheaded and they said, we really want to highlight um, what we feel about this place and why why we why we feel it's it's a um, it's inclusive and mm-hmm. and and where we feel like the culture is really um, open for us and and it's I, I was so proud of them and yes. really thankful to be able to participate. Um, we've also uh, worked to have um, to get. Everybody who is part of recruiting um, sp- specialized training in um, in bias and mm-hmm. in um, and in uh, fair recruiting practices, so that everybody who recruits for a residency, um, as well as our faculty recruitment committee, all participate and and have gone through training. Um, and we've worked to standardize um, uh, uh, interviews and um, posting practices every any time we have a faculty position available, um, and all of those things are really about um, uh, making really creating a fair fair play playing ground mm-hmm. or fair a, and allowing people to, to really be their best and uh, and giving a chance to to everybody so um mm-hmm. so i'm really so amazed at all the work that the committee's done already right. in the last two years and and they're they're off to a great start and working hard
0: that's fantastic and that's good i mean it's honestly it's it's nice to hear because i know you we always hear the horror stories of when folks go on interviews and just the hints of discrimination that you face. So it's amazing that those who are involved in recruitment get the training and, you know, you actually have a special group dedicated for, for the pipeline. So that's, that's awesome. And what's also interesting was that you speak about, um, you know, Michigan's medicines, great alliteration, um, anti-racism oversight committee. Which I've never heard of such a committee, um, and I was hoping you can speak about what kind of being on that committee has, you know, what you've felt and what you've experienced.
1: Yeah, this this was really amazing. So a little over a year ago, uh, when um, when our country experienced uh, uh, the. George Floyd's murder, right. um, and the medical medical students across the country came together and said, "This cannot go on." Um, they the students really wrote a list of things um, that they said, "This has to change," mm-hmm. and they took it straight to the dean. And the dean said, "I, I agree," and right. and formed this committee. And so there are it's it's made up of about um, Uh, about 90 people, and which is too large for just one committee. (laughs) And, um, but, but subdivided into six subcommittees. Mm -hmm. And the one that I co chair is the Education and clinical practice subcommittee. Mm-hmm. So this group, the the dean's plan was to really go through all of the things that the medical students um, said, you know, this this can't go on. Mm-hmm. Um, these practices of that that sort of systematically keep people from from equitable health care need to be addressed. And so Uh, all of those things were grouped and, and, um, and then divided. And each subcommittee had things to work on. So in our subcommittee, so education and clinical practice is made up of the dean for admissions for the medical school, and the dean for curriculum for the medical school, and, and, and the head of the, um, the family practice clinical practice group. So it's people who can get these things done and really make change. So they weren't joking around. <laughs> and and um and what we've been able to accomplish in the last year is really incredible. We have um, created a new course in the medical school, offered a third and fourth year. medical students on race, racism, and, and the history of racism and healthcare. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have um, the medical, the um, administration and the medical school committed to, um, to hiring a full FTE um, uh, for, of, uh, in X, with expertise in um, in intersectionality um, critical race theory and health equity mm-hmm. and and that those people would work to revamp the curriculum so right. they have revamped some of the longitudinal courses that the students go through um, they've revamped the teaching um, packets that go to the the clinical folks who teach some of these courses, uh, admissions practices have changed. Mm-hmm. So in that there are new questions on the supplementary application to med school and in the interview process, and they have already um, uh, anchored those questions. So sort of Pre-tested those questions and then given anchor answers so mm. that, that um those assessing the answers can really um, can really put those on a on a good scale and understand how to grade them. Um, and then we're working to help port the, those questions and those practices into the residency space mm. and into the graduate school. Um, Uh, portion of the med school so that 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 can carry through so I mean we're asking questions about cultural humility on the at at, um residency interviews (laughs) Um, so we're really looking forward to that and then one other really important thing that I think has been accomplished already and I think many health systems are working on it we had um we identified 12 race-based clinical um clinical evaluation tools hmm. that um, ha, were practic- uh, were embedded in our uh, electronic medical record. So the calculation for GFR um, hmm. is actually based on race and not really without any physiologic reason to have a race-based um, uh, portion to that calculator. And right. so so all of those things, um, out of the 12, eight the use of eight of them has been stopped. Wow. Uh, um, many of them are being revamped, and mm-hmm. uh, and race base, race is being taken out of those. Um, and uh, and four are still being evaluated by their own subspecialty um, uh, national societies for um, for better replacements. Mm-hmm. So um, so. So you know, I think we all think, oh, it's hard to get things into the EMR. It's a million times harder to get things out of the EMR. That's very true. But very but true. Um, but the the commitment was really there to do those things, and I'm super proud that we've been able to to accomplish some of those things already.
0: Right. No, that's amazing. That that's you know, it's something that was because folks listened. Right, where folks, you know, the medical students said that this is not okay. These are the things we want to see, and an action was made, so that's, that's truly remarkable. Um, and I know that you've been in orthopedic surgery for some time and you've understood and been around um, and have this expert opinion with regard to diversity, equity and inclusion and those sorts of things. And I was hoping this is a very loaded question and I understand that. But what do you think, in, you know, in your opinion, needs to be done on an individual level as well as an institutional level Within the field of orthopedic surgery to increase diversity, inclusion, uh, as well as equity. I think that um, the last year has really
1: accelerated our ability to talk about these issues, and you know, we—I don't think it was something that we necessarily always talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I pretty regularly said to um, to residents that I, I. I wished that our residency classes could look more like the patients that we treat. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and so uh, I think that, as I said, this last year really helped us um, give language to some of that and be able to speak out a little bit more about where, where we need to be for our patients in orthopedic surgery. Uh, I think that um, there are more and more women role models and we're really able to attract, uh, to, to help medical students who are women or underrepresented minority folks be able to say, oh, I could see myself doing that because I could see that person doing that and, and I, I can identify with that person. And so um, so as we, as our numbers <laughs> grow, I think that we'll, we'll, we'll continue to be able to to message um, how great orthopedics is as a career and all the great opportunities, um, you know, I um, I always said that at um, I would go to conferences and there was never a line at the women's bathroom, <laughs> and that that was my goal <laughs> to have a line at the women's bathroom someday <laughs> at, at our orthopedic conferences, um, and and I think we'll get there. You yes. know, I think that we'll be able to. To really message how great this this uh, profession is.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and I know Dr. Kared, we've talked a lot about what you've done in the past and you know your accomplishments. And I was hoping you can also describe. I know that we touched a little bit on you know the goals that you have as chair of your department, but I was also hoping just in general you can describe your future goals and projects clinically research. Or your work with various organizations, which I did not mention, and there is a plethora of them on your CD, which is always very humbling. But it was great. Well, I I do um,
1: I do think that uh, clinically, um, I I love treating my patients, and and I also really um, it, as I've taken this role, feel like I just got um, my my patient population just just grew so much. Um, mm. I feel like there are through the faculty here, I have so many more patients that I that we can help. Um, My goals are to continue to increase that, as I've said, um, by by making us um, really more open and more inviting to a Mm -hmm. bigger patient population. Uh, and, and I think, um, and, and now I see my role as really, um, fostering and celebrating, um, research successes across our department. Right. Uh, and, and, um, and I, uh, really feel that, that fostering collaborations is a key, um, to being able to, to, uh, to grow our research presence as well. Um, and then, I, I have felt that the Pediatric Orthopedic Society has been such a wonderful place for me to grow in leadership
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, from uh, p- participation on a committee to leading a committee um, and then doing that many times and then being invited to, um, to be a member of the board. And so I hope to continue to be able to help contribute there mm-hmm. and also to be able to mentor um, women in the leadership process, uh, at, at, uh, at especially at the Pediatric Orthopedic Society, which I feel like is my, my gang. <laughs> um, uh, so I recognize that many people have sponsored me through the years, and especially uh, many of my colleagues and mentors in that society and And I'm so thankful for the support that they've given. Um, And and I hope to be able to continue to do that for other people as well.
0: That's amazing. Now, Dr. Caird, I know that you have, you know, places to be and people to see, and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. And so I would like to move on into the segment that I like to call the final five, which are the final five questions I ask every guest on the, she can fix it podcast. And so my first final five question for you is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why?
1: I gave it a little thought. My favorite <laughs> procedure is, um, is to, um, do a scoliosis surgery. Um, oh, nice. I, I love idiopathic scoliosis. I think <sighs> probably all spine surgeons would say that. So, right. um, uh, uh nice, right thoracic curve, mm-hmm. um, and a, and a girl with a flexible spine right. who we can really make straight and really, really change, mm-hmm. um, uh, her, her trajectory for, um, for her, uh, her pulmonary health, but right. also just to also make her help her feel, uh, improve body image and, um, and getting kids, uh, uh, helping them remain, you know, at great functional levels is is uh, that's my favorite. <laughs>
0: nice, that's awesome. What are your go to topics for grand rounds presentations or invited speaking engagements? So the things that I
1: like to talk about the most um, are uh, uh, I do like to talk about bone mass. Um, I love to talk about. Uh, um, De and i issues in mm-hmm. orthopedic surgery, and um, and probably the one that's a little bit out there but a lot of fun is um, radiation safety in orthopedic mm-hmm. surgery. Um, my husband was a Uh, studied nuclear engineering as an undergrad and that uh, we met here at Michigan. And so I always feel like when I can give that talk, um, I can get a little bit of his expertise to help um, to give that talk uh, in in a good and informed way. So I feel like, oh, that's fun. We can, we do that together.
0: Oh, Oh, that's special. And then this is usually the hard one. What is your favorite story slash memory? As an orthopedic surgeon, I was thinking back to
1: um, the, uh, acro- kind of across the, my career so far, right. and one of the things that I really loved. One day that I really loved was uh, when I was a resident. I think I was a fourth-year resident, and um, and uh, I was doing. I was I I popped in a in, OR and in the OR was um, a woman who was a, a fifth year resident. Um, and she was taking, um, one of our junior resident women through a hip pinning Mm -hmm. and, um, and our faculty was, um, Dr. Bierman, um, Mm -hmm. who's also a woman. And, um, and it was, and I, I just popped my head in and then just had to stay in the room because, Mm -hmm. um, because 20 years ago, that was an amazing thing to have a room full of women taking care of an orthopedic procedure and, and, uh, and I, it struck me then and, and must have made a real lasting impression that, that, um, that, that we, we need to make that normal. Right. <laughs> we need, need to make that happen um, frequently. Yeah. And so that, that's, I think that's probably one of the really big memories that I
0: have. Oh, that's special. And then I know that we've talked a lot about medicine um, but what are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine?
1: So it's going to sound um, crazy. I, I love my Peloton right now. Okay. So, <laughs> so I um, that's one of my favorite things to do. And especially during the pandemic, I right. felt like that was such a great stress relief mm-hmm. and chance to still feel a little bit connected to other people. Right. Um, uh, I love, um, and I also really love spending time with my family. Mm-hmm. My, my daughter is, um, going to start high school in oh the my fall. Goodness. So we, um, we enjoy, um, reading together mm-hmm. and, um, she's a tennis player. So I, I always like to watch, um, right. I'm not, I'm not a big tennis player, but, but, um, spending time with my family is yeah. another really big, important thing to me.
0: Oh, have you guys been watching Wimbledon? Yes. I know. Yeah. (laughs) You've been watching it in my household too. It's been great. It's been amazing. I know it was so sad that there's like no Americans left, but that's room to grow, room to grow, certainly. Oh my gosh. And then um, my final question for you, Dr. Caird, is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training?
1: I think that one thing that I really benefited from was, um, was. Trying to be as involved in um, in surgeries and in uh, in procedures in the emergency department and um, and in the clinics. So really being present, participating as many hours of the day as you're allowed, um, and uh, and taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves, um, because learning from patients is a uh, is um, that we remember that more than any other way that we learn. And so I think, I think, um, being really being dedicated to being, um, at the hospital and, and taking care of patients is, is so important. Um, and for, um, that's for trainees, I guess for (laughs) orthopedic surgeons. Um, I, I think, uh, that one thing that's been very helpful to me is to just take a little breath and make sure that I'm, I'm really thinking of things from the patient's point of view and making sure that their experience is, is really good. And that I'm, I'm um, understanding their questions and, and getting answers to them at, um, that they can understand. So I think really working on communication can, can, um, can help our patients um, uh, to be uh, successful in their outcomes. Yeah. So that's, those are my pieces of advice.
0: Amazing. Dr. Caird, thank you so much for being on the She Can Fix It podcast. I have had an absolute blast and I've learned a lot and I'm really excited for everything that you're doing in Michigan. So thank you so much. And I sincerely wish you the best of luck with everything that you're doing. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been such fun.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Michelle Caird. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my lead editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe.